We give our attention this morning to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 1. You start at the left and you work towards the right, past Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And there it will be, Judges chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 6. No, verse 8. I can't read without my glasses. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahaman and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. She dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. They went and they settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of fire. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to today. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, 
or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, or the Canaanites. so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemosh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harez, in Ajalon, and in Zambum. But the hand of the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So Dickens begins his book, A Tale of Two Cities. But it would be much harder to describe the times of the book of Judges. It was the worst of times, in a sense. And as we shall see, it was the worst of times for the church that was Israel. Not only for the nation, but for the church that is, the believing people of God. But what we find in this chapter is how it came to be that the church of Israel was severely compromised in its faith. There are shards of light in the story, but those shards of light are no more than a flickering candle light. God's Israel, we saw last week, had been given a clear commission and a divine rationale for that mission. The mission is summarized in Numbers 33. Let me read it to you. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as a barb to your eyes and thorns in your side and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. In other words, this warning is that they should carry out the mission which was, as we saw last week, to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land of Israel that had been promised by God to Israel. And if they wouldn't move, they were to destroy everything Men, women, boys, girls, cattle, everything had to be handed back to the God who had made it. That was a very tough commission. And it's only when put in the perspective of Scripture, where death is the wage of sin, 
and that the judge has, has it in his hands to implement the punishment, the penalty for sin, which is death for everybody, how that is delivered is in the hands of the judge of all the earth. Who will do right? In this case, we're going to see that this, on this very issue, the whole well-being of God's kingdom going forward and in our lives today hangs. And we'll see that as we go forward. That warning you'll see repeated in chapter 2, verse 3, where we read these words. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, that is the people, and they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. So we come back to the passage that we began last week. And what we saw last week, and we'll tease out a bit more this morning, is that there is initial obedience to God's command and commission. Initial obedience. We saw that at the opening of chapter 1. Everything looked a bit hopeful there. We noted that it says in the very first verse that after the death of Joshua, who'd been their leader, Joshua had served under Moses, the great leader that brought them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the desert for 40 years. He had died. Joshua is in charge. Joshua takes them over the Jordan River uh, into the Promised Land. He has been their leader. Now Joshua's dead. What do they do? Well, the text says that they inquired of the Lord. They sought to know the, and to know and to do the will of God. That's a good thing, isn't it? That's a good thing. God had told them that Judah, that is the tribe of Judah, Judah must lead Israel into battle. And so we find in the earlier part of this chapter that I didn't read to you today, we, re we read that Joseph takes the lead, and, or Judah rather, takes the lead. And there are some crucial victories described. One of the things we see happening as the chapter unfolds, however, is that uh, as they press the matter, their resolve, the further away they get from their home base, their resolve diminishes and their obedience begins to falter. Now, what was the secret of their initial success? In the passage I didn't read to you, their success, for example, over Jerusalem, over Bezek, later on over Hebron and Debir and Zephath and Hormah and the towns of the coastal plain. What was the secret of their success? Well, the secret was that they followed divine directions. They believed divine promises. And they enjoyed divine power and presence in what they did. This is a new beginning for Israel. And the movement of God's kingdom now is expanding, and God demonstrates His presence, His power among them. Now, we saw at the end of the passage we looked at last Sunday, God's justice on display as they overtake this man called Adoni Bezek of the town of Bezek. He's the leader. He had been a ferocious fighter. 
He had 70 kings whose kingdoms he had taken over and whose people he had killed and had murdered and whose princes, whose kings themselves, he had now acting as servants, debilitated servants. And we saw from that that this man, Adoni Bezek, has, uh, is captured by the Israelites and he has punished himself. And he acknowledges, as I have done, so God has paid me back. In other words, right at the very beginning of this book, so we're absolutely clear in our own minds, even one of the pagans actually uh, states or exemplifies the principle that lies behind everything that happens in this book, that God is acting justly, justly, in everything that he's asked Israel to do and in everything that he will do through Israel. It is only just. If the wages of sin is death, it's only just then that these people should die, that we should die, and that we will die. Fundamentally. So we have that statement about the justice of God. Now in this chapter, we come across the name of a man who was famous in Israel, Caleb. Uh, You may know the story of uh, Israel in the wilderness checking out the promised land before they moved there. And uh, you may remember that 12 spies were sent to spy in Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good. Well, Caleb is one of the two who were good. Caleb and Joshua were the goodies. The others came back and they said, oh, there's giants in the land. There are these great fortresses. We'll never We never stand a chance if we go over the Jordan to the so-called promised land. And for that reason, they spent 40 years wandering around the wilderness. 40 years they spent in the wilderness because they didn't go over the Jordan and claim the land. And in that 40 years, what happened? All of these people moved in to the land and took over the land. Well, Caleb was one of those who saw the purpose of God. He saw it, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he told the people that they should obey God in this. Well, here we read about this man, Caleb, and he's responsible for taking over a territory by the name of Debir. Uh, Debir's name originally was Kiriath Sefer, which means uh, four towns. Four towns had come together to create this city, a city of four as the word, sorry, Kiriath Orba, city of four. Caleb is victorious over some of the giants in that land. Three giants are mentioned in the story. And now he has to find someone to help him to attack Kiriath Sefer. The word Sefer means books or or accounts or scrolls. You could say that Kiriath Sefer means the city of books. So he's got to take over this city of books. And he comes up with this idea. He has a daughter, Aksa. And he decides to make her, offer her, as a matrimonial incentive to whoever would capture the city, book city. Now we don't know what prompted this offer. The Bible does not give us any hints or clues or suggestions why he made this offer. 
However, what the Bible is, where the Bible is silent, Bible commentators and Bible preachers are often very happy to fill in the blanks. So this is the kind of thing they've come up with. Let me just tell you. So there's one who's, who thinks that uh, AXA was such a highly desirable marriage prospect that she had so many suitors that this was Caleb's way of separating the sheep from the goats and picking one by giving this offer to the people. On the other hand, if you want to follow other scholars, she was probably an undesirable daughter, and this was Caleb's way of getting rid of her. Or it may very well have been that Caleb Caleb himself was war-weary, and this was a way he could get off the hook of trying to fight the battle himself. Or, I think this is the most ingenious of all, Othniel was related to Aksa. They were secretly in love, couldn't do anything about it, and they saw this opportunity to, get, to be together at last. That, that's the hallmark solution to the story. But the Bible doesn't even hint at any of that stuff, okay? So where the Bible is silent, it's as well that we be silent too. Let me, uh, let me pick out this story as we see it. Uh, Axa's name means bangles or bracelets. It's unfortunate. Uh, because there's always a temptation when somebody has a name like that to make it represent who and what they are. And it's true that at the beginning of the story, what we find is we see her as an object acted upon by these two men, her father, and then her her husband-to-be. But from the moment that she enters the story and begins to speak, we find her taking on an identity and a life of her own. She becomes more than someone's daughter or another man's trophy. Holy Scripture gives her a name, a character, personality, a voice. As the bride of Israel's champion, she uses her new status to seize the opportunity to put things right. Her father had not given her husband land as a dowry. And there are things about this woman that we need to recognize. First of all, there's her marriage. Unlike many in Israel, she was going to marry another Israelite. She was going to marry within the covenant, a covenant child. She was a covenant child, and Othniel is a covenant child. They were going to do the right thing. They were going to marry within the covenant rather than breach God's law. Her request. Her request is taken up with the land. She urges her husband to ask for land. That's his right. And then she goes on to ask for more land. She has a concern for the land. Now, why is that important to us? Well, again, it would be wrong to project our own circumstances back into this. For example, uh, Simon Garfunkel sang a song. I know most of you have no idea who Simon Garfunkel were. I I would sing it for you, but... Uh, Humility prevents me. Uh, But they sing a song, Let us be lovers and marry our fortunes together. I have some real estate here in my bag. 
we're all off to look for America. That, that's, that's the song. It's a great song. But that's not what's going on here. In Israel, the land has a fundamental religious, spiritual, and covenantal component to it. In Israel, the land was what was promised to Abraham in the original covenant, by the way, on which the covenant of grace that we enjoy today was based. The promise of this land. This was the promise, promised inheritance given to Israel. And from our perspective as people who have the whole Bible, the promise of the land presages the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Our promises, the promises God has made to us, are based on the promises that He made to Israel. Jesus picks them up when He says, the meek will inherit the earth. That we're waiting the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That that is our inheritance as gospel people. As Peter puts it, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power right now. The land had this religious, covenantal, spiritual importance to Israel. It was a gift from God. It was the evidence of God's grace to Israel. They didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve it. Nothing in the story of Israel indicates at any point that they deserved anything from God. So it's all of God, and it's all of by way of gift from God. They were to prize it. They were never to sell it. They were to hand it from generation to generation to generation until, of course, the Messiah came And so we find Aksa taking the initiative. She says to her husband, ask him for some land. And he does, and he gets the land. And then Aksa goes to her dad, and she says, Dad, that was very good of you to give us the land, but the land is in the Negev. Negev is desert. Like, thanks very much, Dad, for the desert. She gets down from her horse She looks him in the eye and she says, we need water like us. We need kind of uh, to take care of of the uh, water rights so that we can actually do something with the desert that you've given to us. Thanks very much, Dad. And in this case, Dad responds, not only does he give her one source of water, he gives her two sources of water, sources of water, the upper and the lower water rights. And this, because he was giving it to them, would be recorded in the books of Israel. They had got it from the original owner as a legal bequest to his family and to future generations, and no one could take it away from them. In other words, her request ultimately has generational impact. And Aksa takes her place among the honored company of holy women recorded in Scripture, and some of whose names will occur again and again in this book. She acts to see justice done. She's been used by her father, 
And now her turn arrives, and she asks for the gift of some desert land. Notice the way she puts it. Will you give me a blessing, she says. Will you give me a blessing? Now, to add color to the story here, this man, Othniel, who comes in light of the offer that Caleb has made and goes on to fight the battle, win the battle uh, in Debir, and claim Axa for himself as his bride. This man, Othniel, in chapter 3 of the book of Judges, becomes the first savior, the first judge in the book of Judges. That is to say, Othniel becomes the first type, that's a technical description, the first type of Christ within the book. These judges, who are saviors of Israel, are setting the way for the one who will come, the final one who will come, who will be the judge and the savior, even Jesus Christ. And all these guys point forward to him. So here is Othniel. He's the first judge and savior of Israel described in this book. And the first action that we see him take in the book is of huge significance to understanding what the final judge and savior will do. What does he do? He goes into battle in obedience to God's command to achieve the victory that God has ordained. He goes into battle in order to achieve the prize of the bride that has been offered to him. And he wins the bride by fighting the battle. In other words, we see in this very, very first vignette in this story a picture of our Savior and Judge, Jesus Christ. Why does He come into the world? Why does He go and do battle with sin and Satan? Why does He go to the point of dying in the battle for, uh, for the victory that He seeks to achieve? Who does He do it for? He does it that He might win His bride. Who is His bride? His bride is the church. We belong to the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. He prays for his bride when he says in his high priestly prayer, I pray for those that you have given me out of the world. He is the great Savior and conqueror. He is the only way to God. He is our mediator and our advocate. And so today we belong to the covenant God because we've been won by Jesus Christ who came from heaven and laid down his life to secure our relationship. And one of the things that uh, Othniel's victory did for Axa was to give her a voice, to give her the courage to go and to ask for something from her father. And you and I who have been redeemed by Christ, you and I have been given a voice. You and I can go to our Father in heaven and we can ask for things. We can 
press him for things. You notice what she asks for. She asks for water rights. Give us springs of water, she says to him. And her father gives her the upper and the lower springs. As Christian people today, we go to our Heavenly Father and we ask for springs of water. We ask for living water. We ask Him to satisfy us with that water that springs up within us unto eternal life. The rivers of living water that flow from New Jerusalem and the Spirit of God who who is symbolized by that living water who, who floods into our hearts and refreshes us in the parts of our lives that nothing else will, that renews us, that sustains us, that nourishes us. We come as God's people to claim our inheritance. Well, this story of initial initial obedience culminates in the story of the Kenites here. We read that the Kenites, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms, that's Jericho, into the wilderness of Judah, which is the land that God had given to Judah. And they went and they settled with the people. Now, the the Kenites are descendants of Moses' father-in-law. Moses had said to his brother-in-law, Hobab, that they should join with Israel and in going to the promised land so they could inherit the blessings of the promised land. But they hadn't done it then. Here in chapter 1, verse 16, is the fulfillment of the promise of Moses. Here the Kenites are going up from Jericho to where the tribe of Judah have settled, and they're living among them in a good way. And in fact, in future days, we'll see this in chapter 4, they will play a key role in the story as it unfolds. But the joining of this tribe to Judah also shows us that God's gospel promise to Abraham was still in force. God had said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The inclusion of these people, the Kenites, are a sign of God's gospel promise to his people. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 3. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So we have a glimpse of the gospel in Othniel and Aksa. We have a glimpse of the gospel as the Kenites, this pagan people, join the people of God in the promised land. There was initial obedience. Here's my second point. And there are only two, so you know the end is nigh. There is incomplete obedience. Incomplete obedience here. Everything seems to be going well. Judah, the tribe, not the patriarch himself, has fought battles and won. And we're told in verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. Later we read, the Lord was with the house of Joseph. 
Judah was able to capture Gaza and Ashkelon, Necron. Joseph was able to gather uh, to attack and defeat Bethel and take it over because God was with them. But there's another story hidden in the text here, not very well hidden. Judah, we're told, verse 19, took possession of the hill country, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because of their chariots of fire. That's the biggest load of nonsense in the book. God was with them. God had opened the Red Sea. God had drowned all the chariots of Pharaoh. He could do anything he wanted with their chariots of iron. That's a get-out clause. But the upshot of it is, they didn't do what they were told to do. The tribe of Benjamin took Jerusalem. But it says that he did not drive out the Jebusites, who still lived there, infecting the people of Jerusalem with their false religious and their cult-like behavior. The house of Joseph, they found the secret entrance into Bethel, all right, But they found the way into Bethel not by doing what God told them to do, and that is have a straightforward battle with the people. They they surrendered to, to bribing the man. And as a result of that, this man goes off, builds a city himself, renames it Luz, which was the old Canaanite word, name of the place, before it was renamed by the Israelites Bethel. And then we read that Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth-Shane and the villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. And when they couldn't, when they couldn't get rid of them, when they kept them there, as, as, the, as the Israelites got stronger and stronger, instead of fulfilling their mission, what do they do? They look on these Canaanites as cheap labor, forced labor in order that they might be successful and wealthy. That's the story as it unfolds. And it's a story of incomplete obedience. Now remember, the reason for driving out the inhabitants was not pragmatic or strategic or random. Here's what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 23. Do not let those people live in your country. If you do, they will make you sin against me. If you worship their gods, it will be a fatal trap for you. In other words, the Canaanites were not a military threat They were a spiritual, moral threat to the people of God. And that's where the warning of this chapter applies to the church today. We have some churches, large churches, that have become movements in the global Christian world. And as they become movements, they've got bigger and bigger and bigger, wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. 
best and biggest bands that you can get. And uh, they seem very successful in every, in every measure. People, numbers, money, the kind of show that they're able to put on, marvelous stuff. And yet what we've observed is that the bigger they get, the more of the world's culture they absorb into themselves money, sex, and power. And these things have eaten at the vitals of their religion. And God has closed them down. God has closed them down. By the end of chapter 1, Israel appears to be in control. But the reality is that the Canaanites are multiplying in the land. And as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, tolerate Baal's people, and sooner or later you bow at Baal's altar. What is the lesson for us? Why is this happening like this in the Bible? It's to give you a visceral, visible uh, picture of what is going on in your life and mine all the time. The world, with its its ideas, its, its fashions, its principles, joined to our own innate sinful nature, is always trying to gain more and more and more influence over the church's thinking, over the Christian's thinking. Society invades the way we look at the world. And here's the thing. When Jesus said about our struggle with sin, what does he say? Uh, Compromise with it. Live with it. Have peaceful coexistence with it. Is that what Jesus says? Jesus says, kill it. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. He doesn't mean literally cut it off. He's talking about sin. Deal with the thing. Get rid of the thing. You can't serve God and money, he said. You can't do them. To you... I mean, we all need money to live and so on, but you can't serve God and money at the same time. John Owen, the Puritan, put it like this, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And how does this impact my life? Well, it impacts my life and your life and those little sins that we nurse and we coddle and we keep in a little box over here that we go back to from time to time. And they begin to grow and grow till they dominate our thinking, till we behave in a way that, that brings dishonor to God and, dis- and hurt to others. Unless we kill sin, sin will kill us. That's the lesson of this chapter. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would keep your church pure and keep your church as a church able to distinguish between itself and the world around us. And above all, Lord, keep us close to you that our obedience may be complete and thorough. 
In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.